You feeling better? Good. All right, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. And the title of our lesson is Sovereign in Suffering. Sovereign in Suffering. Now, in our study of Genesis so far, um, one of the things we've seen is that uh, sin always has consequences, right? We start at the very beginning, we saw it with Adam and Eve, we saw it with Cain, we saw it with all the people in the world in the days of, uh, of Noah, we saw it with Lot, we've seen it with Jacob. You, you just see it over and over again. I think we all get that, right? There's a, there's a truth in this world, in both the physical and the spiritual realm, is that you reap what you sow. And we may not like it, but we get it, right? We understand that, that if you... You sow to the Spirit, you reap from the Spirit. You sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh. We we get that, we understand that. You reap what you sow. But what about the times in life when you tend to reap things that you didn't sow? And, and what I mean by that is there are times in our life where we suffer consequences for somebody else's sin. Now that can be a bitter pill to swallow. And if we make the mistake, we have to pay the consequences. Like I said, we may not like it, but we get it. But boy, when somebody else is sinning and we're, it's affecting us, that can be a very bitter pill to swallow. But the fact is, when you think about it, it really is impossible. It is impossible to live in this world and not be affected by other people's sin. We see it all the time. Children suffer abuse at, at no fault of their own just because of their parents' sin. We have uh, alcohol and, and drug abuse that are... Uh, affecting uh, children. In our families, we see families ruined and torn apart by the adultery of one uh, parent. As parents, the, the rebellion of our children, the sin of our children can cause us deep, deep pain. And, and, it, and even if you step outside the family, we've all probably from time to time been the victim of a crime, right? It's, you're the victim. You suffer the consequences from somebody else's Sin. I mean, this happens all the time. You cannot get uh, away from it. And it's in those times where it's very easy to ask those questions. Well, where's God? God, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? Don't, don't you know I, that, that this wasn't my fault? Why am I suffering for the sins of, of someone else? And I think we've all asked those questions from time to time. We may not ask it out loud necessarily but at least inside of our heart, what did I do? I didn't do anything here. I'm innocent. Why am I, I suffering? And it's these questions and these kind of circumstances that make Genesis 37 as relevant today as it was the day it was written, the very day that Moses... This is an, an extremely relevant chapter when it comes to that, that question. Why am I suffering for the sins of, of others? Now... One interesting thing, if you read this chapter from beginning to end, God is never mentioned. God is never mentioned one time in this, in this chapter. But the fact is, God is, is all over this chapter. In fact, His presence is, is running through this chapter like a river just carrying everybody down the stream toward His purposes and fulfillment of, of His will. So he's not mentioned, but he's all over the place. Now, you may ask the question, well, how do we know that? Well, there's, a, there's various ways we know that. First of all, generically, there's scriptures all over the Bible. For example, Ephesians 1.11, that tells us that God works all things according to the purpose of his will, right? It's very generic, but it tells us very clearly that I can take any situation and I know that God is at work 
in that situation. But in this particular story, we have even more information than that. I want to, I want to remind you, if we go back to Genesis 15, so this was years and years prior, when God was speaking to Abraham, which is Joseph's great-grandfather, um, Jacob's grandfather, and God tells uh, Abraham this. This is fact. This is so long ago, it's before he even changed his name. It says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. In other words, this is going to happen. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out. So God tells Abraham, one day all of your descendants are going to go into a land. They're going to be made slaves there. And of course, we know that land is what? Egypt. And after 400 years, I'll bring them out. But it's going to happen. So God is, is literally prophesying and saying, this is what's going to happen. So we already know this thing is going to take place. So that's one way that we know God is at work in this chapter. Another way is when we get to the end of Genesis and all of these events have happened, we've got this famous scripture where Joseph says to his brothers, God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So we've got God telling Abraham, I'm going to make this thing happen. And at the end of Genesis, we got Joseph looking back and saying, God did all that. So here, we're here right in the middle of a chapter that God, God's not mentioned, but we know that he's at work. So that, I want to remind you of that before we even read one word of this chapter, that everything in this chapter is being orchestrated by God. Everything. And there is going to be some wonderful lessons for you and I to learn because we know that very fact. Without that, that fact, it's, you can't understand this chapter. But knowing this fact helps us understand this chapter completely. So let's begin to read. Genesis 37, 1 through 2. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Now, there is a tendency when we come to this section of Genesis. You know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis we call the origins, right? It was all about the origins of life, the origins of marriage, the origins of family, the origins of religion. It's all about getting... And then we come to chapter 12 and we're introduced to Abraham. And then we've got a big section all about Abraham and eventually we move to Isaac and then we get to Jacob. And as we come to chapter 37... It te- you tend to think the story is going to be about Joseph. But that's not really technically correct, because according to verse 2, it's still about Jacob. Jacob, in fact, will not die. He will not pass off the scene until Genesis 49. So he's alive during uh, during all of this stuff that's, that's happening. So this last section is still about Jacob. It's how God is bringing to pass his promises, but he's going to use one of his sons, Joseph, to make that um, to make that happen. Let's continue with verse 2. It says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Now he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, a lot of people, if I just ask you, tell me about the story of Joseph, a lot of people tend to think that he that we see him as some little small boy, like a tattletale. He's out there running around while his brothers are doing all the work, and he sees them do something, he runs back to daddy and, and, and tattles on them. But I don't think that's, that's really true. First of all, he's 17, not 7. Now, at 17 years old, at that day and age, 
girls were married, men were kings. So it's not that he's some some small boy. And and being a tattletale, certainly, there's got to be more going on here because his brothers hate him. I mean, they have an intense hatred for him, enough to kill him. And being a tattletale is certainly not, I don't think, enough to... I mean, you can you can hate your brother for being a tattletale, but it doesn't mean you want to kill him. There's something else going on here. So I, I asked the question, why do the brothers hate him so much, as we'll see here in just a minute? Well, I think there are two reasons. One, the Bible just outright tells us why they hated him. Another reason, the Bible kind of alludes to it or implies it. The first reason they hated him was because he was his father's uh, favorite. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now, Israel, this is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably or peacefully to him. Now, so the Bible's very clear. There's no doubt that their father's favoritism creates a jealousy, right? And this jealousy, it just, just, they, they hate him, okay? Now, there's likely a second reason, though, that they hated him as well. And that is because he exercised authority over them, okay? Now, you may say, well, where do you, where do you get that? Well, let me give you a few clues from the Bible. If you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, Chronicles and Kings are, are, two, are some books of the Bible that basically go back through the history of Israel. 1 Chronicles 5.1 tells us this. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he indeed was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Okay? So you remember the story a few weeks ago about Reuben goes in and sleeps with one of his father's concubines, and because of that, he's going to be disowned. He's not going to receive the birthright, even though he's the firstborn. But there's, there's like nine other brothers ahead of Joseph, right? But, but Israel will look down, or Jacob will say, I'm going to give it to, to Joseph and, and his sons. Now, this will not actually happen until chapter 49, when they actually transfer the birthright. But it's very likely, even at 17 years old, because uh, because Jacob loves him so much that he's already given him preeminence among his brothers. He's already made that choice that one day I'm going to give him the birthright. And so it, it's very likely, even at this age of 17, that he's already elevating Joseph and giving him responsibilities even to the point of exercising authority over his brothers. Now, there's a few things that back this up. First of all, it's very likely that his coat was a symbol of authority. In that day and age, this, this term, coat of many colors, is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where Tamar, who is the daughter of David, it says she put ashes on her head and she tore her robe of many colors, or her coat, it's the same exact term. Now, Tamar is a princess. Her dad is the king. And so it's very likely that this coat of many colors is a, is a symbol of authority. Not just some coat somebody makes that's, that's very colorful, but it's ac- actually a symbol of, of authority. Many commentators uh, believe that. There's also this thing of social stratification. Remember, Jacob's got four wives. He's got Leah and Rachel. 
who are, who are full-fledged wives. And then he's got Bilhah and Zilpah, who are the maids, and they're the, they're the concubines. Well, as concubines, they would be on a lower social stratosphere than Leah and Rachel. Everybody with me? They wouldn't have the, the preeminence. They wouldn't have the honors. They wouldn't have everything that goes with being a full wife. As such, their sons would also be at a lower strata on the social uh, ladder than the sons of Rachel and, and Leah. See, when you go back in verse 3 and 4, and it mentions that Joseph is in the field with the sons of who? Zilpah and Bilhah, the two maids. See, because of this social stratosphere, it would make sense that when they're out in the field, Joseph is actually in charge. Because the Bible goes out of his way, out of its way to say he was with them. So it's very likely that he had authority over them. He was exercising authority, okay? Look at verse 5 through 11. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaf gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. If y'all don't know what sheaves are, they're just when you take hay or grain and you bind them together, right? It's not like, and, and that's what he's saying. They're usually laid down in the field. He's saying, uh, mine stood up, yours stood up, and they all bowed down to, to mine. Verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed going to reign over us or rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I had another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Now, I want to go back to this authority that I keep saying. So it's very likely that Joseph already was having this authority or this preeminence over his brothers. And I want to tell you that I believe this is another evidence of that fact. Here's why. Because of the intensity of his brother's reaction to this dream. Listen. If Joseph was just some silly little boy, and he had a dream like that, and he came to his brothers, they would just laugh at him. They'd say, you're an idiot. You know, we don't, we don't listen. Get away from us, right? They, they, why would they be jealous? See, if it's just some kind of fanciful dream, they would have just said, whatever, get out of here. But they didn't. In fact, it says their jealousy burned even more. You see, the fact that it caused them to be jealous tells me there's something behind it. There must have already been some evidence of this authority, of this preeminence, because when he has a dream, they take it seriously and it makes them jealous. You're only jealous of something somebody else has. If he didn't really have that, if there was no evidence of that, they wouldn't have been jealous. But the fact that they were shows that there was probably already this authority and stuff in his, in his life. So this animosity, as you can see, just continues to build. They already hate him. Their father gives him a, a robe. They hate him even more. Now he has these dreams. Now they hate him even more. You can just see it. It's just building up. It's just waiting for, for an opportunity to explode. And the time finally arrives when they get him all along about 50 miles or about actually about 70 miles uh, from their house. Verse 12. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near 
Shechem. Now, let me just remind you, back in chapter 33, Jacob had purchased some property in Shechem. Do you all remember that? If you remember that lesson, when he came to Shechem, he, he bought some property. So he still owns uh, a tract of land up in this place called Shechem. So it would make sense, right, that he would send, he wouldn't just let it sit there and go to waste. Um, that was very fertile land up in that area. So he would send his flocks and stuff up there uh, to pasture. Verse 13 and 14. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now the first thing I just mentioned, this is not just around the corner. Okay, Shechem is about 50 miles from Hebron. Okay, so this is not, hey, just, you know, run out into the field and check on your brothers. This is a journey uh, for a man, not a boy. This is not something, you know, if, if this, if Jacob didn't know how to take care of himself, if he, if he hadn't already proven that he could handle himself, he would have never been sent on a, on a journey like this. The other thing you got to remember, remember Shechem was the place where was it, uh, was it, uh, Reuben and Simeon or Simeon and Levi? I can't remember the two boys that went into the town and slaughtered all the men for raping their sister. Y'all remember that? So they're going back to a place where they had killed a bunch of people, right? So it's actually Jacob is right to be concerned for his flock and to be concerned because listen, there's probably still relatives that live in that area. There's people in that area that are still scared of them. And so they could, you know, he understands that's a dangerous place for them to be. That's why he sends Joseph to go and, and check on them. So he does that. But again, it's the kind of task you don't send a boy. You, you don't send somebody that hasn't proven themselves. You send a man to do that. So there's something about Joseph at this age. He's already got this leadership capability. He's already got this authority. He's already proven himself. And so uh, Jacob feels comfortable sending him up into that situation. Verse 15. And a man found him one... So, so, so Joseph travels the 50 miles and he goes up there and he's looking for his brothers, right? They don't have cell phones. They don't, you know, they don't have... They can't find out where he... So he's got to go up there and look for him. So he's wandering around the field. And a man uh, asks him, what are you seeking and what are you looking for? And he says, I'm looking for my brothers... He said, tell me, please, do you know where they are pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Now, Dothan is about 20 miles from, from Shechem. Now, listen, Moses does not have to tell us this, right? It's almost like, you know, he, he could, it, it, the Bible could just have said, hey, he went there and found his brothers. But it goes out of his way to tell us this, because listen, he wants us to see the providence of God at work. Let me tell you, Joseph, years later, might look back and say, boy, if, if I just hadn't found that man, if that man had just not showed up that day, I wouldn't be in this prison. I wouldn't be accused of, of rape. But see, God is at work, man. God, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing coincidence. There's no happenstance with God. God put that man there to say, your brothers are over there. And Moses goes out of his way to point that out because he wants us to see that God is sovereign. God is always in control. Verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now, how do they recognize him? Because he's wearing this stupid coat. 
This boy just don't, you're going to see in a minute, this boy just don't get it, right? He's just wearing that coat. He's so proud. Well, you can see him 10 miles away. There's that guy with that coat, right? And so he's wearing this coat. And by the way, that, that could be the thing that set him off, right? I mean, they see that coat and it just drives them insane. It's a symbol of his authority. It's a symbol of his father's favoritism. They hate that coat. And they, they hate what that coat repre- represents. And so that might have been the thing that kind of set them off. Verse 19. So they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then it tells us what was in Reuben's mind that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So Reuben says, hey, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. And Reuben's thinking, I'll, when my brothers are all asleep or when they're not looking, I'll go get him and I'll return him to my, my father. Now, why did Reuben do this? Well, it sounds like he's a good guy, doesn't it? It sounds like out of all the brothers, he, he's got Joseph, but that's not it at all. In fact, we'll see in a few minutes, his reasoning is not moral. He's not, it's not like he's got something against killing him. His reasons are completely selfish. And the Bible will point that out here in just a minute. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. See, the first thing they did, they, got that, they hated that robe, right? The robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him in the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now, if you're reading the King James, the King James will use the word cistern here. Okay? So the word here in the Hebrew, it, what it is, is they would go out in these fields and these pastures, and instead of dig, digging a well, there would be times they'd find like a hollow in the rock or a, a natural depression. And what they would do is they would, take, uh, they would take their tools and they would dig that out. And the idea, they would create a big hole in the ground that would hold rainwater. So it wasn't just a pit that just happened to be out there in the middle. It had been dug for the sole purpose. Uh, it's in the rock. It's for the sole purpose of holding rainwater. And so Moses goes out of his way to tell us there's no water in it. Well, once again, you don't have to tell us that, Moses. Because if there's water in it, the boy would have drowned, right? Don't, you don't have to tell us that. So why are you doing it? Because he wants us to see the sovereignty of God at work. He wants us to know that even then, even in the sense where he's being thrown in the pit, God is making sure that that pit is dry because God has other plans for him. Again, he's just going out of his way to show us the providence of God. Verse 25, Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, I want, to know, I want you to understand how callous these boys are. They have thrown their brother into a pit, and they sit down to what? Have a meal. Later in Genesis 42, <clears throat> they'll say this. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother, because we saw how distressed he was when he cried to us for mercy, but we refused to listen. The boy, Joseph, is in the pit, and he's over there, and he's, he's, he's terrified. I mean, he is absolutely terrified. And he's just, it says we saw how distressed he was. And he's crying out for mercy. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. And what do they do? They sit down to eat a meal. 
I mean, that's how callous they were. That's how hard they were. There's no shame there. There's no regret. There's no, there's no loss of appetite. Their own brother sitting in the pit, hollering for mercy, crying to them, begging them not to do it, and they can actually sit down and, and eat a meal. So it just shows you something about these boys. Verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, and they took um, Joseph to Egypt. By the way, you'll see them sometimes called Midianites and sometimes called Ishmaelites. It, it can be a little bit confusing, but Judges 8.24 tells us the Midianites are Ishmaelites. So there's just, it's just two different names for the same group of people. It wasn't like different traders come along. They're just sometimes called Midianites, and they're sometimes called uh, Ishmaelites. Verse 29, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. Where shall I go? So... They throw him in the pit, and they, he's in the pit, and they sell him to these traders who are passing by heading to Egypt. Well, evidently, Reuben wasn't there. He was out doing something with the flock, or he was running some errand. So he comes back to the pit to look for Joseph, and Joseph's not there. And I want you to notice the words that come out of his mouth. It's not, oh my gosh, you've killed my brother. Oh, we've committed murder. Oh, we've done this. No, his words are, oh, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? See, it was always about him. See, it turns out that his reasoning was not anything ethical or moral that he wanted to save Joseph. See, as a firstborn, that would have been his responsibility to go report to his father that his favorite son was dead. It would have been his, he would have been held responsible for the safety of Joseph while he was there. So it's all about him. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to tell my my father about this. So nothing moral or ethical on his mind, just self, um, selfishness is the only thing. Now Judah, on the other hand, he's not perfect either, and you'll see that next week. He's got a lot of issues as well. But at least he does a quote-unquote better job of saving his brother. He at least acknowledges is that, that they shouldn't kill him because murder's wrong and he's, and he's family. Okay, So at least he's got a, a reason for not killing him uh, beyond just selfishness, but he said, hey, why not make a profit? <laughs> right? Let's sell him, make a little money uh, while we're at it. Verse 31, Then they took Joseph's robe, and they slaughtered a goat, and they dipped the robe in his blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Now this is, you're going to see in a minute, this is pure irony. And he identified it, and he said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, which is the grave, to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, as I said, this is pure irony. You remember years before, Jacob had killed a goat to deceive his father Isaac, and now his sons kill a goat to deceive him, right? It all comes around, right? We reap what we, we sow. 
And here he is, he's thinking Joseph is dead. And literally, you can see his grief. The only thing he feels like he's got to look forward to is the grave. I will, I will go, I'll see him in the grave. I'll go down to the grave uh, with him. By the way, he thinks his son is dead and he will live with that lie for the next 20 years. He'll have to live for that 20 years thinking that Joseph is dead. But of course, Joseph is not dead. In fact, he has never for one second been outside the care and the safety and the sovereignty and the providence of, of God. He's in Egypt, right? And, and, and is by, again, no accident... He is sold to a man named Potiphar, who is a, an officer in Pharaoh's ad- administration. And we'll pick up the story uh, from here. Now then, there are many years that are going to go by before God's words to Abraham are fully fulfilled. They've got to be 400 years in, as slaves in the land of, of Egypt. But the process is now just, it's all started right here with Joseph being taken down to Egypt. And we'll see how this unfolds in the chapters to come. Now i got about 15 minutes. I want to go over a few things that I believe this chapter teaches us about the sovereignty of God. Because that's, this chapter is all about the sovereignty of God. These four things that it teaches us. Number one, God is sovereign even when parents are idiots. God is sovereign even when parents are idiots. Let me tell you, we've already seen in this, in this book, Jacob is so far... <laughs> He is not the greatest father, and he's not the greatest husband. Do you remember, I mean, think about this. This is all on him. Do you remember when his wives were having this, we call it the battle of the brides, and they're all competing with one another to see who can have the, the most children? Y'all remember that? See, he, and he never dealt with it. He, he allowed from the very beginning this spirit of rivalry to exist in his family. And it started with the moms, and guess what? It just carried right down to the children because he never dealt with it. This rivalry that, that, that's going on between his children, that's on him. That's him as a father. He never dealt with that as a husband, and he never dealt with it as a, as a father. You remember, he's got other problems. He, when, when Dinah was raped in Shechem, he was going to let her marry the Canaanite who had raped her. He's like he had no problem with that. He, when his sons went in and killed all those men, he never dealt with it. He never dealt with it. He's passive as a father. He's passive as a husband. And now, here he is openly favoring one son above all the others. And, and even as he favors Joseph, it, I, I don't understand this. It's like he's blind to the jealousy. It's blind to the rivalry. Now, you may say, well, how do you know that? Because if he had any idea of what's going on, he would have never sent Joseph into that situation. You don't take a son who's hated by the other boys and send him 50 miles away into a situation where he's all alone. You don't do that if you got any clue what's going on in your family. Jacob is clueless. He is a terrible father. I, I don't know how, any other way to say it. He has no idea what's going on in his family. He's blind to the rivalry, a rivalry which he allowed to, 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 uh, to fester over all these years. You see, he should have been wise enough not to have shown favoritism to one son over the other. He should have protected him by not sending him into that dangerous situation, but he didn't do any of those things. But let me tell you, God is still in control. Even when the parent was an absolute, clueless, passive, terrible father and husband, God is still in 
control. Now, let me say this this morning. I'm sure in this room there are people who your parents were like Jacob. They have done some clueless things. They have done some insensitive things. They may have even done some terrible things. There's just parents like that out there. And let me tell you, you've got an option. You can get mad and you can get bitter at them or at God for all the wrong things that they've done. You can do that. You can blame them for showing favoritism to another child in your family. You can blame them for not protecting you from certain situations where they should have. You can blame them for being a passive mother and father. Or you can trust that God put you there. Or you can trust the sovereignty of God, that God put you in that family. Yeah, that's your choice. Right? See, even though you don't understand everything, you don't understand the whys and all of that, you can thank God. Why? Because Romans 28 says, We know that all things work together for good for those that love Him that are called according to His purpose. Even the, the, the idiocy of some parents, the foolishness of some parents, God says, I will take that and I'll work it out for good in your life if you'll just trust me. Don't, don't get bitter. Don't, get, don't blame just trust me. I'll take even those things and I'll work it out for your good. And by the way, you can forgive because that's what you're called on to do. And by the way, in the end, no matter who your parents are or what they were like, you are responsible to walk in obedience to God's Word. You are. There's no, you can't get there to heaven and say, well, I didn't forgive because that doesn't go, right? Even in those cases, you're still responsible to Forgive and walk in obedience to His Word. Number two, the second thing the story teaches us, God is sovereign even when teens are naive. Listen, Joseph is this, he's a typical 17-year-old. I, I know that I've gone out of my way to say that Joseph is responsible and Joseph is a leader and Joseph uh, was given authority over his brothers and I believe all that, but he's still 17 years old. I can point out teenagers and I'd say, boy, he's a, he's real responsible. He, my sons at 17, I, I felt like they were very responsible, very mature, but they were still 17 years old. They don't have the wisdom that's gonna come with age. Teenagers are gonna make mistakes. Here's Joseph. He has these two dreams. Now, anybody with any sense, Maybe you go to your father and you confide in your father. Maybe you go to a friend. But you don't go to your brothers who hate you and say, Hey, let me tell you about this dream I got. Right? I mean, that was just not a very smart thing to do, was it? But that's what 17-year-old teenagers do. They're, they're naive. Again, it's just not a very smart thing to do. Now, by the way, it does not seem at all... There's nothing in this story... That, that makes it seem like Joseph was going to rub it in their face. There's nothing here that, that, anywhere is there a hint that he was doing this to provoke them. By the way, if, if, he, if he had any idea, he was just naive. If he had any idea how much they hated him, there is no way he would have walked into that situation. There is no way he would have walked into that situation wearing that coat. Because that, that was just, I mean, that was just like lighting a fuse. If he'd had any clue, but he's just naive. Again, it's just he does really dumb things. Now, let's be honest. 
Is there anybody here that didn't do dumb things when they were 17 years old? Anybody? I mean, the fact is, we do dumb things as teenagers. We don't have the wisdom yet. We don't, we don't know the things that, that we need to know. So we do stupid, immature, naive, idiotic things, and we make mistakes. Now listen, we should encourage teens to make wise decisions. We should do everything we can to teach them and to pour into them. But let me tell you, they're still going to make mistakes. Because number one, they're human beings, and number two, they're teenagers, right? But let me tell you, this story teaches us that we can trust God to not only overrule those mistakes, but even use those mistakes to accomplish His will in their, in their lives. That's the wonderful thing about serving God. We can teach our teenagers, yes, you don't, you know, live wisely, make good decisions. But even when you make a mistake, if you'll just submit your life to Him, He'll take those things and He'll turn them into good. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. Number three, this chapter teaches us that God is sovereign even when people are hardened by sin. I want to go back real quickly, verses 19 and 20, a statement that you might have missed. The brothers see him coming, and they say, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. Nobody will ever find him. And we'll say the animal has devoured him. And then here's their heart. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. In other words, you see, those dreams are from God. By the way, his dreams, they're going to come true, 100%. But they're saying... Look, we'll, we'll take care of this situation. We'll control our destiny. He thinks he's going to rule over us. Let's just kill him. That'll never happen. By the way, it's the same thing Herod did when he slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem. It's the same thing the devil's been doing thousands of years trying to destroy the people of Israel. If I can just keep the people of Israel, kill all them, God can't fulfill his plans. If I can kill all the infants in Bethlehem, God can't fulfill his plans. If we can kill Joseph, God can't fulfill his plans. It's the, same, it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. But again, his dreams are what? They are going to be precisely fulfilled. You see, these brothers are sinning. They're doing exactly what... They are hard, man. They are, they are callous and they are cruel. They're doing exactly what they want to do, yet God's hand is on the whole process. They're doing what they want to do, yet they're doing exactly what needs to be done to fulfill Joseph's dreams and fulfill the plan of God. In its simplest terms, God is working out His plan through sinful and willful man, even when they're trying... Here's these boys that are actively trying to resist the plan of God. Actively. said, let's kill Him. Then none of this stuff can come to fruition. And all the while, God remains in absolute full control. Now, by the way, God assumes none of the guilt or the responsibility for man's sins. Again, they're doing exactly what they want to do. They're doing exactly what's in their heart. They bear full responsibility for their sins. That's what it means to be sovereign. How he does that, how men can do exactly what they want to do, and yet they're fulfilling exactly the, 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 the purposes of God, i got no clue how he does that. That's what it means to be God, and that's what it means to be sovereign. The fourth thing... God is sovereign even in our suffering. God is sovereign even in our suffering. What a, what a commentary this chapter is on the suffering of human beings. 
and how God, where God is when we are suffering. You see, on the one hand, if you just read this story, if you didn't know anything about the Bible, you didn't know anything about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if you didn't know anything about the, all that happened, and you just picked this story up and read it, you would say, wow, that, all this suffering is just needless. It's purposeless, right? I mean, here's Joseph, and he's, 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 he's sold into slavery. He's moved miles away. They go back and they tell their father, and now the father has to live for 20 years thinking his son is dead. If you didn't know anything about what's going on behind the scenes, you would think this is absolutely needless, purposeless suffering. Yet James 1, 2 through 4 says this, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect, so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many here want to be saved at the end? Raise your hand. How many want to be saved and go to heaven and spend eternity with Christ? Jesus said, those that endure to the end will be saved. So how many of you want to endure to the end? Because that means you'll be saved. My brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you fall into trials because the testing of your faith produces what? You want to be saved? You have to endure. You want to endure? What builds endurance? Suffering. Suffering. That's why, notice who he says, my brothers and sisters, not the world. Because let me tell you, if you're not a believer, your suffering is purposeless. It is meaningless. But when you're a Christian, my brothers and sisters, suffering, we can literally count it as joy. Why? Because it's building endurance which eventually leads to salvation. That's why he can say that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible statement that James can make right there. So we can take that scripture and we can look back now at Joseph and say, Joseph, man, count it all joy. Because as a believer, as a child of God, God is using the things you go through to not only bring you to salvation, but to bring your people to salvation, to change you. Look at that last statement. So that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. Now let me, let's, let's be honest. In the midst of suffering, for those of us that have gone through it, let me tell you, it's hard to see. Sometimes you can't see through the tears, you can't see through the ache, you can't see through the pain. But the end result of that is endurance, it's faith, it's maturity, it's, jo- it's, it's joy. It was the same for Joseph, and it's the same for every child of God. Next week we turn to uh, Genesis 38, and our, our story will continue for uh, really right up to the end of, of the chapter um, with, with how God is dealing with Jacob and Joseph and the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father.